My guest today is Peter Dombrowski. He's a professor of strategy in the Strategic and Operational Research Department at the U.S. Naval War College. He's the co-author of The End of Grand Strategy, U.S. Maritime Operations in the 21st Century, published by Cornell. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. It's great to be here. So typically, I have someone here on the show to talk about some academic article they wrote or a book. Um, but in this case, what prompted our discussion was a tweet of yours, which I guess I shouldn't feel too bad about because we're in an era where those lead in the uh, most prestigious newspapers. But the basic sentiment that you expressed was that the most important threats to Americans are internal, not external. Domestic problems, not necessarily malicious foreign actors. And you added that a, a lot of the hand-wringing that we see in the national security establishment, both official and civilian, is over relatively modest national security problems that are often dwarfed by more worrisome obstacles to our, our well-being. So let's just start with that. Expand on this and, and sort of what do you mean by it? Great, John. That's a good question. And uh, thank you for actually seeing a tweet of mine. I appreciate it. Um, I do want to say before we begin that, you know, this is a disclaimer. I'm speaking in my private capacity, not on behalf of the Naval War College or any government agency. So I just want to be clear with that. Um, it, this is a first for me to have a tweet uh, stimulate a discussion, but I was deadly serious with that tweet. And for somebody that studies national security and international relations and made a career out of it, I think it's revealing that I've come to believe that over the last uh, decade or more. What I'd like to say is that if you read the daily newspapers or the blogs or the journals that keep up with contemporary events, there's lots of articles that, you know, the United States has to do something about Somalia. The United States should do a different diplomatic approach to Burma. Um, there is dozens and dozens of these articles, and they're interesting, and I follow them because this is my business. But on the other hand, if uh, the Biden administration or the Trump administration or the Obama administration was taking their advice from these articles, they would go from crisis to crisis, problem to problem, and not focus on the big things. So the first point is that, you know, there are certain kinds of foreign and security policy crises in the outside world that are deeply important, and we should pay close attention to them. Nuclear weapons, the rise of China, uh, maybe even international immigration. But right now, at the third decade of the 21st century, um, there are domestic challenges that demand our time and attention, and most importantly, our resources. Um, you know, it's interesting, the debates over the last uh, 20 years in Afghanistan, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, how much the United States has spent. And some good chunk of that money has been spent, obviously, on, you know, military aid, operations, and so forth. But there's been a chunk of money that's spent on development in the Afghan, Afghan case. And I have no problem with that in the sense that, you know, I feel bad for the Afghans and I understand their needs. But I also look at American infrastructure, American poverty levels, American healthcare troubles, and I think, boy, I would like some more resources spent on making Americans wealthier, healthier, and more able to go about their commercial business using some infrastructure that we've invested in. Uh, in the academic literature, this is, you know, one of the key concepts is securitization. 
that we can't get the attention of senior policymakers or Congress without putting a military or security spin on. Um, you know, famously, whether it's true or not, it's certainly one of those stories that, that goes on and on is the interstate highway system that we enjoy today that helps us get from city to city, from from place to place, was part of a package from Eisenhower that was part of the Cold War. So to get the infrastructure we need for commerce and that we need for people to go about their business and be able to live where they want to live had to be framed in security terms. And I think this is a problem today. So you write a lot about grand strategy, and I think grand strategy is supposed to um, clarify objectives, prioritize among many different things. And you you made mention of how if you fix things in the language of security, you're more likely to get attention from policymakers or it's more likely to come through in the sausage making. But how did we get to the point where we seem to have a grand strategy that is expansive enough to include everything but the kitchen sink and prioritization is seems all kinds of confused yeah that's a great question and i'm going to i'm going to reveal myself metaphorically that if i had to identify myself as something i am probably in the restraint category and i don't usually say that because intellectually i'm committed as a scholar to try to understand U.S. and other grand strategies rather than do what, what Dr. Simon Reich and Terry Balzac and I talk about as prescription. I think too many scholars are prescriptive in their scholarly roles, vice their public intellectual or you know somebody doing a podcast roles. Um, but my own personal position is that there are only a handful of problems in the outside world that require a vast commitment of U.S. resources. And my personal political commitment, separate from my scholarly role, is that I would prefer to spend on uh, the American people. And, you know, this is a party political question in some ways, Democrats versus Republicans, conservative Democrats, liberal Democrats, uh, the GOP, and, and so forth. But I think a case can be made that the overall development of American society uh, really depended on American government investments, the highway system, canals, ports, airports. Um, I think the great society for all the criticisms has made us healthier, has made us more secure in housing. I don't think we're anywhere near we should be. So if we're going to tax Americans, if we're going to demand they provide us with resources, um, we need to do so in a way that husbands, that economizes those resources in ways that really fit our needs. Securitization, I think, is an empirical or conceptual idea about how you actually achieve investments in all things outside of national security interests. But I don't think it's right. I think it's it's the polarist state of our political discussion that we need to couch things military spending as part of a military Keynesianism that provides jobs. If military spending is worth it, we should do it on the basis that the uh, capabilities we're acquiring are necessary to protect the American people, because there are better ways to um, provide jobs. There are better ways to channel public monies to the American people and to American states and American commerce than doing it backhandedly 
through the defense industrial uh, base and defense industrial sector. And this comes from somebody who spent a lot of years studying defense industries. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know if that exactly got to your question, but that sort of gives you the generic background to the kind of twits, tweets I send out uh, and discuss. Yeah. And let's see if we can get specific. It's not just that grand strategy is expansive and therefore everything but the kitchen sink is in there, but it's also true that policymakers misjudge which threats are most pressing. And if some problems that the government needs to face don't have that external enemy type flavor, they might not get the, the attention that they need. So what specifically do you think that we're doing in the world that is, is not nearly um, as important or pressing for US interests as it's typically talked about? And then what are some threats or problems that we ignore given those finite resources and attention? I'm going to start backwards, um, in part because, you know, the ignore question is central to some of the things I've been thinking about in the last uh, few months. Um, I think we really have ignored, particularly in the last, you know, four to eight years, uh, climate change and the real threats posed by climate change and environmental factors in general. I think, uh, you know, the deaths, the lost economic opportunities from climate change are hidden in some ways, or they're not believable to the public. Um, but let's take some, you know, some basic examples. You know, climate change has all kinds of things that people know and are familiar with, you know, sea levels rising, glaciers calving off early, the receding of glaciers, um, you know, all this stuff is sort of on the news. But there's other things like uh, extreme weather, whether you're a climate change adherent or not, extreme weather is becoming more and more prominent. And it's really costly uh, for insurance companies, for ordinary citizens, for businesses. Um, and climate change isn't a national problem. It's a transnational problem. It's an international problem. Neither the United States nor China nor Europe can solve a climate change on its own. God forbid it's too late. But Making an effort to deal with climate change is coming too late. And this is, you know, and I'm not sure it's a lot of military spending or foreign affairs spending, but it is diplomacy. It is domestic changes. It is domestic politics. And it's something we need to do uh, with other countries of the world because American citizens aren't the only ones threatened by, uh, by climate change and its impacts. Uh, it's, it's a universal problem. So that's one that's ignored. I, and I know there's a specialized literature, and I know there's lots of folks that are doing excellent work on it. But the national security, security community tends to set that aside. We'd rather worry about an island in the South China Sea and an airbase being built on a, a reef than these macro changes in our environment that are going to kill lots of people. Now, the grand strategy and prioritization, this is, a, you know, this is a, the, the holy grail in some ways. You know, right? Strategy should be, and famously, most scholars talk about prioritization being critical. And you know, how can it be done? Well, you know, obviously, we talk about national interests, you know, things in the Constitution, things in our national security planning documents, uh, congressional legislation. There are lots of sources of what American interests and objectives in the world are. But racking and stacking... Uh, the intensity of the threats and the 
immediacy of threats is a very imperfect business. And it's a business, you know, to use Patrick Porter's term, um, that depends a lot on the nature of the blob. The think tankers and engaged academics and congressional people and high-level journalists that make the policy mix and sort of generate the material that the American public sees somewhat on the nightly news, but increasingly through the internet, through Facebook, through uh, Twitter, and other social media. Um, they generate priorities in ways that uh, are distorted. And I don't want to say all of them because are because they have a pecuniary interest, they have a monetary interest. They're doing it because it solves their institution's interest. But I think there is a fair amount of that. And there is a sense of a herd mentality that, you know, it's like little kids playing soccer. Sorry for all of you out there uh, that are part of the little kids, but, you know, little kids playing soccer chase the ball around in packs. They don't have a strategy. They don't have a scheme. The ball goes somewhere and all the kids run to it. In some ways, this is the nature of our prioritization. There are long-term trends. So uh, a few hours ago, I was talking before a group about the Indo-Pacific. And one of the things I discussed was how American grand strategy in the Indo-Pacific has evolved over time. And this has been a slow decades-long process. You know, before the Asia pivot, there was more of a focus on the greater Middle East. With the Asia Pacific, there was a return rightfully or wrongfully, uh, implemented well or not implemented well, to channeling American resources to the age of Pacific. This was a macro trend. But the day-to-day, hour-to-hour, quarterly trend, uh, dominated by the fiscal year, the legislative calendar, is oftentimes uh, driven by what the blob is interested in, or what they're trying to get you interested in, whether it's... Um, people for hire from foreign governments to lobby, whether it's the gatekeeping function played by journalists on social media or on cable, uh, the blog plays an awful role. And it's a role that uh, is unelected, in effect. It's interesting and important to the American people to stay informed, but it doesn't necessarily get you to a sound prioritization. Now, if the world was right, in my mind, this would be a job of political leaders. Right? This would be what, what it means to be a great president. Um, you know, the story of FDR before World War II is very complicated and nuanced. But at some basic level, FDR spent at least four or five years before World War II sort of preparing the American people for the challenges ahead job-owning Congress, job-owning some of his political rivals, to start thinking about the need to arm, to start thinking about the threats in Europe and Asia. He wasn't very successful. It took a lot of work on his part. But in the end, he led. I'm just uncertain that the political leaders can lead us out of the blob. And I think, by the way, and I, I, I'm not speaking about the Biden administration. You know, We haven't seen with their uh, national security strategies, the national defense strategy, we've seen a a short document that gives a sense of it. So we'll see how this happens. But, um, you know, I would like to see more leadership, more focus. And oh, by the way, referring to my earlier part of the conversation, um, I don't think uh, presidential leadership or high-end government leadership should be solely on national security and international issues. That would be a distortion of what I think are priorities. But they should lead on what 
the threats and the opportunities are in the international system. And having everything be a threat and everything be an opportunity is not good strategy, particularly given shortfalls in resources, time, energy, and attention. So you mentioned things like climate change. And of course, uh, ever since the pandemic hit, um, it's been a topic of conversation of maybe how to securitize these types of problems that have not been traditionally fit into the national security category. But don't you think there's a risk potentially in securitizing non-national security problems as national security problems? You know, it allows for prioritization to get screwed up. It allows for um, parochial interests within the state to have more to grab at. Um, talk about that potential. Yeah, I mean, you, you've caught me in one of the contradictions in sort of my position here. Um, but I think I can work my way out of it by referring to a paper I wrote with Simon Reich last year in um, in the journal International Affairs. And one of the things we did in the paper was sort of an historical analysis of how things like, you know, let's just stay with global public health and, and pandemics, how that emerged in the national security sphere over time. And if you look back, going back to the Reagan period, there's been a gradual accretion of language about global public health and particularly things like pandemics, transmissible diseases in high-end national security documents, both within uh, the State Department, the executive branch, excuse me, the executive office, and within uh, DOD. Um, so I think there is a precedent. Now, is it a contradiction to security securitize? I think, you know, I'll, I'll be upfront in some ways, yes. If I was king for a day, I would not securitize it. I would make it a priority for domestic politics, but for the non-military, non-intelligence community, part of the international affairs efforts of the United States. And we all know the vast uh, amount we spend on defense. Uh, people imagine we spend a lot on foreign aid. People imagine we spend a lot on, you know, other kinds of international activities, but it's simply not true. And, you know, if I was king, I would sort of reallocate some of those resources. But in the short term, given the immediacy of climate change and the need to act quickly because of the pace of change, maybe we do need to securitize a bit. Uh, maybe we do need to, to get DOD involved. It's not an ideal solution. It would not be my preferred solution. But at a minimum, and then we talk about some of this in the paper, there are things that DO can do, DOD can do as part of its normal way of doing business that will be useful, like early warning systems. You know, Americans deploy all over the world. Why not have the more engaged in monitoring global health trends? Yes, the CDC. Yes, the, there's other agencies that do it. But I don't think they have the global footprint of the U.S. military. Um, maybe early warning means early intervention if there's a breakout. No, I work all the time with military officers and enlisted. I don't want to put them into harm's way to deal with infectious diseases uh, without being very careful about it. But if we could at least find ways to utilize that forward deployment and that constant uh, movement across the world to maybe prevent epidemics from getting out of hand and reaching American shores, that would be a net positive. And I'm thinking, you know, there was cases during, uh, 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 excuse me, during Ebola, where this was thought about and tried in some places. I don't think it should be a primary mission. 
I'm sympathetic in some ways to the Bush administration before they came into office and said, you know, we don't do windows. But the threat is great. The priority is high in this case. A little bit of securitization isn't the worst thing. Let's work in the long run on finding better ways, more efficient ways of protecting the American people. As a guy who's written a full-length Cato paper on why we should not have a forward deployed presence uh, that might run into some problems. But I want to ask you a question sort of related to your reference to the blob. In that article that you wrote with Simon Wright, you wrote that, uh, excuse the long quote here, the process of professionalization of state-sponsored national military accelerated in the 20th century. Both world wars led to a ratchet effect in the United States in which the wartime expansion of militaries never receded uh, to pre-war levels after the war. Some scholars suggest that the post-9-11 period has resulted in a new era of state building, resulting in perhaps the development of a national security state, a fate that the United States reputedly avoided during the Cold War, at least according to some scholars. Can you expand on that? So before I, before I get to your main point, I, I do want to say that you and I will probably share a lot of thinking about forward deployment. So I'm taking foreign deployment as a fact that I haven't been able to argue against and change. But if we're going to be fully deployed, at least let us uh, use it in some ways other than, you know, we haven't do. Okay, so I, I, I don't disagree with on that. You know, the state building quote and the, you know, professionalization, the expansion, um, you know, there's a lot of really good literature on, um, on this. And I, you know, I'm not expert but certainly, you know, Steve Skoranek, uh in American Political Development, uh, in the eight, look at the 1880s and 1890s, how the American military professionalized. You know, in my own world, which is naval, uh, the Navy itself became a much more professional organization uh, in the 1890s and 18, uh, 1900s and 1910s, in part because of the establishment of the institution I work, the Naval War College, but also uh, sister institutions like the Naval Postgraduate School over time, as they sought more technical skills and business skills. Um, so there was higher educational levels, a more meritocratic system. You know, all things are positive. But the expansion of numbers the expansion of responsibilities, the expansion of basing overseas. I'm just writing a paper on basing, so I'm immersed in the idea of you know this this uh, constellation of bases in virtually every portion of the world. Some quite small, but others enormous by any standard. Um, and I'm struck by the fact that this happened in some ways by accident. Um, you know, again, I'm no expert, but if you look at the history of post World War II, after after uh, you know, uh, Germany and Japan unconditionally surrendered. You know, there was an immediate period where demobilization was very rapid, where American boys were coming home, and that's what Congress wanted, and that's what the presidents wanted. What happened was it founded on the Cold War. You know, whatever you think about the origin of the Cold War and the threats available and the role of, uh, you know, crises like Berlin and, 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 and the Korean crisis and so on and so forth, the fact of the matter is we remobilized. We actually, you know, went down to a to a, a post-World War II nader and then rebuilt as we saw the Cold War emerge. And the Cold War um, exacerbated this for all kinds of reasons that, you know, we can discuss. Now, to go to the point about 
you know, what we resisted in the Cold War. There's a fantastic book by Aaron Friedberg, which I highly recommend to anybody, uh, In the Shadow of the Garrison State. And he sort of charts in, in great detail, I'm not going to do any justice to his arguments, how, you know, despite the Cold War, despite the fears of the Cold War, the American state remained, uh, allowed the market to work, prevented sort of the overwhelming uh, uh, desire to meet the Soviet technological threat uh, from sort of nationalizing companies or creating a private arsenal, making a much larger military, particularly land force, than we had had in the nation's history. There was a lot of ways that there was resistance. What happened with after the, the 9-11 um, was twofold. One was, you know, the militarization of uh, further militarization of some of our power and policy in the interest of counterterrorism. But the other thing was the surveillance state, not just in the United States, but in the world, the Patriot Act, the vast expansion of collection of data and information about ordinary citizens. And I think it's fair to say, without getting party political, that the abuse of this data has been a stain on American political history given what our founders and most of our history has meant for private citizens. Um, there's been a vast rise in incarceration of terrorists and near-terrorists, both in the United States and abroad. Um, you know, I want to protect American citizens as much as anybody else. I'm, I consider myself a patriot. But do I really think that many of these efforts made us more secure? If anything, the blowback the negative impact, the creation of more terrorists or more insurgents in places um, has uh, been part of the result of some of the excess of the immediate post 9-11. The Patriot Act and some of the, you know, extra uh, extraordinary renditions, um, you know, counterterrorism blending with counterinsurgency operations in Afghanistan and Iraq haven't served, in my mind, uh, the United States well. And it, it, you know, I, I argued against CT as the focus of U.S. grand strategy after 9-11. I was alone. There was only a handful of people. Now, I don't have a big voice. I'm just a scholar at the Naval War College. But I went around the country saying, this is not the way to do it. And I think uh, what we've seen is some of the ne negative impacts to this day. I also want to ask you about this notion that you've written about that uh, and this goes back to a little bit of our climate and pandemic discussion, that the United States, instead of its traditional role, at least post-war role, of trying to be a provider and a guarantor of, of security for others, um, it's now just the nature of the world, uh, much more dependent on the support and cooperation of other states to protect itself uh, from things like pandemics. And I wonder if you can speculate a little bit on what that means for what kind of posture we should have in the world. You know, our military posture and our diplomatic posture, there has to be a kind of delicate balance between those. Um, and how do you think things should change for America going forward in our approach to the world, given this uh, change in dynamic? Um, I want to start with a little bit of, you know, my own stylized history. So, in, during the Cold War, and particularly in the moment of unipolarity and primacy after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact, there was a tendency amongst many American strategists to talk about um, 
the United States as if, as if it was a global sheriff, if, as if, you know, to use Madeleine Albright's term, the indispensable nation, that uh, America didn't actually need allies. We had the resources and the power to go it alone. I think this was just, you know, frankly, nonsense. I think throughout American history, in fact, throughout recorded history, even the greatest powers of our time and historical powers, Great Britain, the Soviet Union, the Dutch, going back to Rome, had partners and allies for hard security issues and for soft security issues. So I think we've always needed partners, allies. You know, strategic documents now pay homage to that. But I think in practice, if you get, you know, some of our leaders in a room quietly, you know, they're very focused on what the United States can do versus how we can share responsibility with partners, how we need partners for everything from overflight rights to diplomatic pressure and agreements to international organizations to do a a lot of hard work. Now, exacerbating this are the transnational threats of climate change, pandemics, and epidemics. Um, Exacerbating is is that, you know, in a world where telecommunications and global travel and mass migration is a fact of life, a reality, despite the efforts to stop it. Um, You can't simply wall off the United States. The military shouldn't be used primarily as a public health agency, although I've said I would like some efforts to be made. You need countries uh, in the World Health Organization. You need bilateral arrangements. You need global monitoring and surveillance. I don't like surveillance uh, in many ways, but surveillance of outbreaks of disease and the transmission of these diseases across national borders, it relies on partners, not just state actors, but non-government actors, uh, international organizations, and a host of social movements that um, keep track of people. Um, you know, here's an interesting connection. We mentioned this in the in the international, Reich and I mentioned this in the international affairs piece, is that there is a connection between climate change and epidemics. You know, if you look into the literature, not the IR literature, not the national security literature, but you look in the public health literature, the global public health literature, uh, rising temperatures, changing uh, climate patterns, whether it's rainfall or drought, uh, play havoc with things like uh, the transmission of disease from animals to humans, they play havoc with things like, you know, and I, again, I'm, I'm outside of my area of expertise, that transmission from insects to animals, from animals to people. These things are, are, are transnational. They are, they're not limited. Um, if we're going to allow global travel, if you believe in globalization economically and so forth, uh, it's only natural that countries band together and cooperate. Even China, you know, the big adversary or the potential adversary, you know, it was really difficult to watch the complications of the geopolitics between China and the United States in dealing with the Wuhan outbreak. Whatever you think about the origins of self forth, neither country nor all their allies and partners and neighbors wanted to have this pandemic occur. And the fact that geopolitics got in the way is problematic. I'm curious about how you think we can unwind uh, some of these problems that we've teased out in this conversation. Um, given the perspective that you've articulated, you know, now is an actually kind of an interesting time in Washington, D.C. Uh, 
where there there does seem to be a debate going on about grand strategy and about America's role in the world that just didn't occur, I think, in past years, at least to this level. And I know a lot of folks who are of the opinion, which may in fact be correct, that you know, the way to do this is to essentially, um, in the words of my former uh, colleague, Emma Ashford, build a better blob. You need a, a, to change the elite consensus around U.S. foreign policy and national security in order to have uh, a, a substantive change in policy. In other words, the politics might lag here. Um, but I, I sort of wonder if you can speculate about the debate as it's ongoing, uh, the prospects for actual change, and maybe how you'd like to see things uh, go forward. So let me say up front, I think, you know, Emma Ashford is one of the really unique voices in the blob, if she wants to be called, said to be in the blob. And I think I share her concerns. I'm probably less optimistic for two reasons. First of all is, you know, I'm just enough of an historian uh, to see these windows of opportunity opening and closing uh, basically since the America, the United States uh, entered the world in a serious fashion at the end of the 19th century. You know, there have been many moments where we think, you know, the Wilsonian moment where we think things are going to change and things don't. That doesn't mean you have to agree with the Wilson Wilsonian moment, but certainly his efforts to reshape American policy and the global uh, system fell flat. Um, and you can go on and on through, through the period. I'm also just enough of a political economist, which is my original field, to feel that incentives matter. And I just don't know that the incentives work to change the blob. You know, just look at, you know, and, and I'm not, many of folks are personal friends and good colleagues. I don't mean this as a casting aspersion on anybody individually, but look at the incentives. You know, there's a, there's a whole literature in the newspapers, the, the Washington Post about this and that think tank taking money for this or that bad guy or vested interest. Elite journalists, you know, the complaints about elite journalists hobnobbing with their sources and wanting access and thereby not telling the story correctly is a long story. It's been around for at least 100 years, probably since the beginning of the Republic. The uh, revolving door between government officials and military officials and the private sector that they interacted well with while they were in government is well known. You know, I love retired admirals and generals for their skills and their knowledge and what they've done over time. But the lobbying position for, you know, defense industries, and I'm not going to name names, uh, is somewhat corrosive. Even worse is that the voices that are on cable news are fairly limited. You don't see uh, many dissenters. You see people that confirm the conventional wisdom, that restrain administration talking points, or clearly a shilling for somebody, some organization, something, some other country, some ethnic group, some political group. Um, I just don't think the incentives to stop any of those things are there. So where is the source of change? I have one glimmer of hope, but it's not. It's a glimmer which is maybe there's an impatient on the American people's part today, but they need to vote. They need to participate. They need to voice not mediated through, uh, you know, 
you know, some of the maligned voices in our society, but they need to weigh in. You know, one of the things about uh, the Afghan crisis and how Biden's handled it over the last uh, three or four months is a sense that Joe Biden actually is representing the American people who say, you know, 75% or some number close to that say, you know, they approve of withdrawal. They don't necessarily approve of how the withdrawal was executed, but they would approve of withdrawal. But if you poll elites, it turns out they don't approve at all. At least Biden is listening to somebody, you know, for what reasons, I'm not sure. But he certainly is listening, or at least he's aligned with the public. So I have some hope that the American people will finally get tired of it. I mean, if I was paying, I am paying, you know, relatively high taxes, both at the state level and the national level. And I feel that my health care is threatened. I feel that we haven't handled the pandemic well. I worry about climate change, not because I have property on the coast. I wish I did. But because I don't want to see more tornadoes and hurricanes and typhoons here or abroad. Um, if we can find ways to articulate that and force political leaders to assume a leadership role, there might be a glimmer of hope. But it's going to depend on all of us as voters to articulate that and not be satisfied with business as usual by our leaders or business as usual by the bloc. Well, frequent listeners of the show will know it's not a requirement for us to land on an optimistic note. But Peter Dombrowski, thanks for joining the show today. Thank you, John, for having me. I really appreciate this. You ask great questions. Thank you. And uh, I, I don't usually get to speak in an expansive way about these issues, so it was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.